This yes. is hell. I see. Live from late capitalism, where the only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy, this is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. How's your week going so far, Alex? Uh, can I pitch you on birdscaping in the Midwest, a guide to attracting uh, gardening with native plants to attract birds? Is this possibly from Chelsea Green Publishing? Oh, no, actually. It's from uh, Wisconsin. Oh. Just, I guess, Wisconsin, the state? Thanks, Wisconsin. University of Wisconsin? I don't know. You know, uh, that is something. Not that particular book, but my girly asked me for Christmas. She wants a bird guide because we live on a park and she wants to be able to identify birds. Whatever. My secretly uh, Jewish barber who worked in a Muslim barber shop, she retired, which sucks because... She was a block away from my house, and I need a haircut for the holidays. If you are in Chicago, tell me where I should get my haircut. I just don't know anywhere to go. I don't want to put up something online, like in a Facebook group for the neighborhood, saying where's the best place to get my haircut. I don't want to do that kind of thing. I just want somebody who's a listener. Hey, maybe you're a barber and you listen to the show. Send me an email at chuck at thisishella.com and tell me where I should go get my haircut here in Chicago. Today we'll talk to a former educator who believes school is, let's see, uh, stupid. The way we educate students is just plain dumb when you consider that what they are really learning is conformity within a business model to create not imaginative thinkers or creative artists, but compliant workers. It's all about discipline and not enough about actually teaching students about the world around them. That is, other than indoctrinating them with the idea that to get ahead in life, you better conform And if you rock the boat, expect to be tossed overboard in today's schools. In fact, our next guest, again, a former educator herself, actually suggests that if you have kids, whatever you do, do not let them attend school, at least school as we know it. And if you will talk to artist and former teacher's aide, Penn Donovan, author of School is Stupid, notes from the classroom, you can get Penn's book via the website smashwords.com by searching on School is Stupid. It's also available on Apple Books or Book Apples. I'm not too sure which one of those two things. Following Penn, we'll name a couple more of our favorite books to be featured on This Is Hell in 2019, and then we will have the return of sociologist Nicole M. Ashoff, who wrote the Jacobin article against self-driving cars. Instead of spending billions developing driverless cars, we should be building sustainable people-centered transportation. Nicole is on the editorial board of Jacobin Magazine. This is Nicole's seventh appearance on This Is Hell, dating back to March. March 2015, when we spoke with her about her then-just-published book, The New Profits of Capital, which examines the pervasive feeling that capitalism is leading us in the wrong direction and argues that it's time for ideas that challenge the core assumptions of our for-profit system. Nicole was on most recently back in January of this year to talk about another Jacobin article of hers, Hegemony Now. For the first time in decades, a genuine opening for the left has emerged. We must forge a new consensus. You can find all of our interviews with Nicole at thisishell.com. Find out more about Nicole at nicoleashoff.com. That's Nicole, A-S-C-H-O-F-F.com. Follow Nicole on Twitter at Nicole Ashoff. After Nicole, we'll announce a couple more of our favorite books of 2019. Then later on this week's show, we'll be speaking with Maya McDashi, who will tell us about her article at jadalia.com beyond the Lebanese constitution a primer 
There are uprisings happening all around the world right now, and the vast majority of them are being completely ignored by the Western media and U.S. press. In what is being called the Lebanese Revolution, protesters are angry about an economic crisis, government corruption, the wasting of public resources, sectarian rule, laws shielding the 1% from any accountability, and the lack of basic services such as electricity, water, garbage collection. Sure, it all started in October with the government announcing plans to raise taxes on gasoline, tobacco, and online phone calls, but this uprising is about a lot more than tax hikes, although I'm certain that's how the Western media is depicting them because the West likes to think all revolutions are anti-tax uprisings. We'll learn what's really happening when we talk to anthropologist Maya Mikdashi, co-director of the documentary film About Baghdad. Maya is a Mellon postdoctoral fellow at Rutgers University. She is co-founder and co-editor of Jadalia Ezine. You can follow her on Twitter at Maya Mikdashi. I'm not going to spell it out for you. You can find it at our website. And of course, we'll have the moment of truth with Jeff Dorch. And this week's question from hell is, what are you getting Bernie Sanders for Christmas this year? What are you getting for Bernie Sanders for Christmas this year? Leave your response at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishowradio. The person with the best answer to this week's question wins a surprise holiday gift. We're not going to spoil it, but we can give you a hint of what you're going to get this year. And it's one of the books that made our best books of 2019 list. Which one will it be? We're not going to tell you and ruin the surprise. Alex, do you have any of our listener answers to this week's question from hell? Yeah. What are you getting Bernie Sanders for Christmas this year? Jack B says, so this is hell subscription. Jack, (laughs) I have invited Mr. Sanders to uh, join us on Patreon many times. And I has never answered my tweets, and that is why I am supporting Elizabeth Warren this year. And it's only four bucks. Yeah, you know, come, come on, on. I know you got it, Bernie. You know, uh, Fabio L says the toothbrush I stole from my boss. Mez <laughs> M says twenty dollars. Max I says another rectal osculation. <laughs> Cutting ahead of Jeff Dorchin <laughs> on that one. Uh, Justin H posted a gif of a man cutting the chain of a guillotine, so it smashes down on a can of red spray paint. And then the spray paint hits him in the crotch. Okay. <laughs> New sort of gender reveal. Maybe I don't quite understand. I yet. don't know. Uh, Twin Peaks Democratic Socialist of America says Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> fingers crossed. What are you getting Bernie Sanders for Christmas this year? Andrew P says a balloon to brush his hair with. <laughs> Eric T. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Eric T says not getting him any clothes because the media will make a story about him owning something nice. Yep. Chris F says the f- means of production. And Alexander M says home leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our facebook page facebook.com slash this is hell radio and you will have a chance at winning one of the books that made this year's list of favorite titles to be featured here on this is hell in 2019 earlier this week when i announced the first four books on our list of favorites to be featured on this is hell this year during interviews with their authors i explained how this year we were picking 13 books because And seeing as how there are no rules for making our list, other than being a book we've featured on our show in an interview with that author, I'm already breaking the rules. That is, I woke up at 3.02 this morning. 3.02 in the morning. Unable to fall back asleep because I remembered two books I wanted to add to this year's list. So I was having an intellectual and emotional fight for 15 books as I started at the ce- stared at the ceiling while listening to my downstairs neighbor apparently march around his place from approximately 3.02 to, last time I looked, 5.08 this morning. 
after deciding I should fight for 15 books and add two more titles, so there will be 15 books on our list. And remember, they're not being mentioned in any particular order whatsoever. The next book to make our list of our favorite books that we discussed with their authors on This Is Hell in 2019 is... Carrying a child is a very dangerous thing to do. In the United States, almost 1,000 people die while doing childbirth each year, and another 65,000 nearly die. The process by which a fetus becomes a baby is, as some have said, a, a rampage gestation in the potential childbirth can be traumatic. So maybe it's time for a more compassionate way of going through childbirth, a way that can bring us all together closer than family has ever been before, possibly through the revolutionary idea of full surrogacy. Why haven't we gotten there yet? Well, if you listen to This Is Hell regularly, you know it's because capitalism. But if we truly want to liberate ourselves from the colonial patriarchal way in which we approach gestation, we need to rethink things like human trafficking, surrogacy, the handmaid's tale, family, and gender. At least that's the argument we read and heard from theorist, critic, water-based entity, writer, translator, and rootless cosmopolitan in Exodus from Academia, Sophie Lewis, author of Full Surrogacy Now, Feminism Against Family. Sophie is a feminist committed to cyborg ecology and queer communism. Sophie was our first guest during this year's annual Listener Appreciation Month. We hold every July when we only have guests on the show who are suggested by listeners. Listener Melissa suggested Sophie, writing, I'd like to suggest Sophie Lewis as a person to interview. They're just, they've just published a book called Full Surrogacy Now on work and capitalism, family abolition, feminist solidarity, etc., so I think the book was great and very challenging. The interview was intense, and it was easily the interview that caused the most discussion during This Is Hell Office Hours, which is our weekly meet-and-greet every Wednesday evening at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's Little India neighborhood. Uh, but don't tell any of the people in the community that you call it Little India, as it apparently offends all other ethnicities in the area, that is, except the people actually from India. On top of all of that, it was a book suggested by a listener, and our listeners suggest the best guests here on This Is Hell. That makes Full Surrogacy Now, Feminism Against Family by Sophie Lewis, the fifth book on our list of now 15 favorite books to be featured here on This Is Hell in 2019. Sophie is a member of the Out of the Woods Collective and an editor at Blind Field, a journal of cultural inquiry. Find out more about Blind Field at blindfieldjournal.com. Find out more about Sophie at... Oof. La Sophie LLE. La Sophie LLE. La Sophiel.org. Follow Sophie on Twitter at Repro Utopia. Repro Utopia. You can listen to our July 6th interview with Sophie at our website, thisishell.com, and we suggest you do because it caused a lot of buzz amongst the This Is Hell crowd this past summer. Another title to make our apparently ever-expanding list of our favorite books on This Is Hell this year is by a repeat winner who made our list in 2018 as well. From the impact of the Cold War on African Americans' actual support for the apartheid regime to the not-so-revolutionary leadership of Nelson Mandela, our mind was blown by this book. The next book on our list makes you rethink the campaign to overthrow apartheid, the Revolutionary African National Congress, Nelson Mandela, African American support or lack of support for the campaign to end apartheid, the Cold War, white supremacy. We reconsidered everything we knew about ending minority rule and South Africa because everything we thought we knew was wrong. Okay, maybe not the part about apartheid being a horrible system of white oppression, but other than that, 
forget what you know. We were completely reintroduced to the fight against apartheid. What really happened? What didn't? When we talk to historian Gerald Horn, who for the second year in a row has a book on our favorite book list. This time it's for White Supremacy Confronted, U.S. Imperialism and Anti-Communism versus the Liberation of Southern Africa from Rhodes to Mandela. Gerald's book was also suggested by a listener during Listener Appreciation Month in July. Calvin wrote telling us that he recently saw that Gerald Horn had two new books out. One's called Jazz and Justice, Racism and the Political Economy of Music, which sounds fascinating. And the other was White Supremacy Confronted. We chose White Supremacy Confronted. Last year's This as Hell interview with Gerald was one of my favorite of 2018. It looks like either or both of these books could also make for an excellent interview. Gerald is John J. and Rebecca Moore's professor of African American history at the University of Houston. The book of Gerald that made it to the list on in 2018 was The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, The Roots of Slavery white supremacy and capitalism in 17th century North America and the Caribbean. You can find both of those interviews this year's and last year's with Gerald at our website, thisishell.com. We'll also be playing all of these interviews with the guests whose books made our favorites list this year on New Year's Day back-to-back. I'm hoping that we can fit all 15 in there. We'll start at 9 a.m. Central Daylight Time until 9 p.m. Consider it your hangover cure for New Year's Day 2020. Biting the hand that you refuses to feed us since 1996, this is hell. Coming up this week, we'll find out from a former educator that school is stupid and who argues that if your kids are about to start school, stop them. We'll learn why safe driverless cars are an impossibility and how the pursuit of the technology is a detriment to sustainable transportation in our era of climate change. Then we'll find out later on this week's show all about the Lebanese revolution. And, of course, we'll end this week's show as we do most week's shows, and that's with a moment of truth from contributor Jeff Dorchin. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. Live from the United States, where property has more rights than people, this is hell. We're continuing our many, many conversations we've had over the last few years with dissenting voices who are very critical of schooling today. So critical that many of them are seeking alternative ways to teach kids. But our next guest is a bit more blunt about it, as you'll be able to tell by the title of their new book, here to expand on our interviews, The Problems with Education Today, artist and former teacher's aide Penn Donovan is author of the brilliantly named School is Stupid, Notes from the Classroom. Welcome to This is Hal Penn. Hi, Chuck. What time is it in Australia right now? Uh, 6.15 a.m. Oh, my God. Why are you doing? Oh, my God. I Thank you so much for being on at 6.15 in the morning. 6.15 in the morning this morning, I was staring at the ceiling and yelling at myself for not being able to sleep. So thank you very much for coming on our show this week. No worries. You write, it's time to completely rethink the way we educate our children. I realized this after returning to the classroom with 40 years of adult experience behind me. How different is school from when you last attended before 40 years of adult experience? Was school still recognizable or has it changed significantly from when you last went to school? Well, my horror, my horror in the first week was that it hasn't changed at all in 40 years. That uh, struck me full in the face. I thought, well, we've got teacher aides now. This is nice. More help in the classroom. 
But after I uh, was in the classroom for about a week, I realized that it's exactly the same as when I went to school. And when I went to school, I had no idea what I was looking at. And as you do, you reach adolescence and you think, oh, gosh, this is boring. I can't wait to get out. Uh, but kids today, they have no context to judge what's happening to them. You know, we all know the kids in the classroom that kick up at what's been done to them, but they don't know, they can't object to it in any other form, but just kick up and make hell in the classroom. But uh, there's definitely something amiss about what we do to our children, and I'd like it to stop. So I took notes from week one, A, to cope with what I was witnessing, and B, to get with the word out. Why do you think it hasn't changed? Why do you think we believe that this process of schooling is good enough? Well, you know, our children are delightful creatures. Every morning they wake up with good cheer. And off they go to school and they come home and they get some food in their belly and it's onward and upward. They're just such beautiful beings, our children. And so we get the message, you know, nothing's wrong. Also, our education system suits our the structure of our society, doesn't it? I mean, we need to go out to work, we need to knuckle down, we need to take the pain, we need to endure, and all these things are part of school life. And uh, so it suits us all to continue this, and uh, I think it's um, time to take a very long and serious look at it and how school has contributed to where we are today. You write, it dawned on me that we're blind to the realities of what we're doing to our children and with wide-reaching consequences. What are the wide-reaching consequences of the shortcomings of a preliminary education? Here in the States, that's a K through 12th grade education. What is What are the wide-reaching consequences of these shortcomings of a preliminary education? Well, our idea that our children have to be educated at all. They're not, um, they're not uh, beings that have to be taught to learn. Learning is the default. And uh, they're absorbing a great deal from the moment they first open their eyes in your arms. And uh, we don't have to teach children to learn. But what school is doing is actually turning them off from learning from their own side. And they're telling them that only teachers have the knowledge that they can learn. Curriculum is uh, a very uh, steel cage kind of thing. And... uh, I've gone off topic. I can't remember the question. Please repeat it. (laughs) I was just saying, uh, what are the wide-reaching consequences of the shortcomings of preliminary education? Oh, gosh. Get me started. um, We're great talkers in our family here. We talk all the time, how did we get here and how are we going to get out? And every time we listen to your show and hear some brilliant thinker speaking, we think, well, uh, let's change school. That might change things. Because, you know, remember, we're for 12 years worldwide. You know, we all have the same education system. It's not any different here from the States. Uh, we're taught the same thing for 12 years straight. It's really day after day, year after year, the same thing. And how can we not uh, be completely indoctrinated by the end of it? You write in a world dominated by the business model where emotions are to be left at home with the little woman. I raise the flag for returning normality to working life and all its manifestations, radically changing the way we educate our kids might help. How do you see, and I know, again, this is probably in many ways, but how do you see that business model manifesting itself in school classrooms? Hierarchy. Uh, and all the boys must wear, we have uniforms here in, in Australia, and all the boys must tuck their white shirts into their black pants. Uh, 
and behave like they're working in an office building. <laughs> in the book, I talk about a story of how the lads go out and play soccer all during the break time, and they come in very hot and sweaty, and they've got to, you know, look crisp and office-like. It's, you know, it's a bit of a joke. And uh, so they're not really allowing kids to live in the real world. It's a complete uh, mirage uh, that we ask our children to adhere to, and it's just not real. And they all know it. So are we yeah. training them all for white-collar jobs? Because not everybody gets white-collar jobs. Not everybody's from a white-collar background. Is that what we're training them for, is white-collar jobs, not blue-collar jobs? Yeah, that's what I saw. You know, this desire, this shooting for the academic uh, is the first thing that school does. And if you fail at that, you can do other things. Uh, one of the joys I had that from the stint working in the school was the opportunity to do woodwork and metalwork. I loved it, you know, this sort of doing things with your hands. And also, um, as you know, I'm an artist, and so I was helpful in the art room. But again, if you can't do academia, you go there. It's as if if you're not good enough for uh, writing essays and whatnot, you have to go to woodwork, metalwork. And if you fail at those, off to the art room. Can you imagine how I felt about that? <laughs> so you you worked only four days a week, and you thought that you would have the energy left to continue your painting work. You write how wrong I was. Here in the state, schools operate five, not four days a week, and we still have people who do not support teachers, saying that teachers only work nine months out of the year, so their jobs must not be that difficult. After all, they get paid for not working every year for three months. Why didn't you have time to pursue art? You got three days off every week. What was the obstacle to you pursuing art? Well, you know, these teachers of ours are working. Their, their work life is literally bashing their head against a brick wall for five days a week because herding kids into this strange way of being is very hard work indeed. You've got one adult to 30-plus kids, and you're asking them to do something very natural, which is to sit there at their desks and do what they're told. And uh, if you know kids at all, this is hard, hard work. And so after five days, any teacher goes home absolutely exhausted, and they deserve every break they get. And not only that, I hear in the States that a lot of kids, the teachers have to pay for stuff that they use in the classroom. That's appalling. So not only are they working hard as anything, they're not really supported as they should be. But anyway, I you know, I want to get rid of the whole thing. I think delivering curriculum is just schools are not fit for purpose, especially now. We need to introduce democracy into our schools where kids have agency to determine what they do and what is done to them and we might think oh you know they're immature they don't know what they want and what they need well from our point of view it looks like that but they they get on with their day they've got stuff to do and if they can sit if they have to sit there and do nothing that's okay too because you know there's time we often hear the phrase here in the United States that democracy stops at the workplace door, at the schoolhouse door. Apparently the same thing happens in Australia. Why isn't democracy not allowed within, in your opinion, why is democracy not allowed within the schoolhouse? Well, you've got a lot of kids and very few adults, and it just seems like you have to be very autocratic to keep control of the situation. And uh, I had a brush up, I say in the book, um, I had a slight brush up with my deputy head who said, this is the only way we can do this. He must have read my mind because I was feeling a bit frustrated about not being able to contact the child that I was after. But 
we have to completely change what we do in schools and we have to have a whole lot more people there, not just teachers, because teachers are just teachers. You know, that's what they know. We need to expose our kids to people who aren't teachers and just have them live in the real world much sooner than they do. And you're right about making sure your child gets individual attention is not within the edict of the Western education system. But as we all know, more individualized education has been shown to create positive education outcomes. If the goal of schools is to make students into good and productive workers, compliant workers, why don't they also make certain they have the individual education that produces the best results? Well, I don't know what the best results is. You know, what is, what is the best results? It depends on who you're talking to. Uh, you know, do you want people to understand Pythagoras, <laughs> Pythagoras's theorem, or do you want them to be able to function as autonomous beings? And this whole idea that you must function as an individual at school and in the real world is kind of a bit of a tragedy too, because we don't live alone. We live in groups, and we have to function as groups and get on with other people. And uh, you know, we need to learn to work together. And in school, you must work on your own, you know, no copying, no talking. You, you are on your own. And this is a bit bit hard on your, you know, your person. It's very hard indeed to be alone because we can't do anything alone. No one has ever achieved anything alone. I, I don't want to in any way bash teachers, but you write as a low earning artist, I've had plenty of bottom rung of the ladder jobs where the peculiarities uh, had had me floored. I just moved on. Were there teachers or other staff members who just moved on to another bottom rung of the ladder job, not considering the plight of the students? Did you ever see educators at any level as if this was just another lousy job and nothing more, not considering how that may impact the student's education? Because I can imagine within the system of schooling, the way that you describe it, that would almost be a default eventually to most educators. Yeah, you've got the range of people. I mean, teachers are humans, and you've got the ones who mail it in. It's quite easy to do. You just deliver the curriculum over and over, and then you go home and have a drink. I mean, that that goes on, and you've got the other teachers who put their all into it, and the whole range is there, and uh, it's kind of sad to witness. You, your first task was to help a 14-year-old boy who you refer to as C, and you wanted him to get the most he can out of being at school. Do I get him out of the classroom where he does his thing? Yes, apparently, where inappropriate behavior means interrupting, swearing, and not uh, cooperating. I needed to quickly figure out a reason to attend in class and help him deal with his impulsivity. Do you not necessarily view what he was doing as inappropriate behavior? Isn't swearing, interrupting, and not being cooperative inappropriate behavior for a 14-year-old in school? Well, it was understandable from his point of view, and uh, he needed a lot of conversation time with, with other people. And uh, he would hang out with the chaplain. Yeah, we have chaplains in our schools here, and it's just been refunded by the Prime Minister, who is uh, approves of chaplains. But he, this, our chaplain was a good guy, and he, would, uh, he and I would chat with this kid, and that's what he needed was you know, people time, uh, especially with people who didn't hate him. And uh, it, his situation just escalated because he frustrated every teacher and administrator in the school. And so um, he gets ejected, basically. Kids like this just get sort of squeezed out and moved on to a different school. And that's how they cope with, with people who actually need help and people help, just human being help would have helped enormously. 
I, it didn't sound like in the tone of your voice that you agree with the Australian government's position on having chaplains in schools. You do talk about how this was a good guy and who did help out this student who you call C. Uh, how do you feel about the general rule of having chaplains in school in Australian education? Well, I don't think we should uh, mix up. We should impose any kind of religious flavor on in schools should be secular on the other hand as a teacher aide here was another teacher aide he was another person on deck who could look after students as a one human being to another as opposed to a teacher so you know i'm conflicted you know pay for more people in the in the school but anyway I'm, i can't talk to fixing school by by you know adjusting little things i just want to see the whole thing kind of the slate wiped clean and start again with the whole idea of what school is. The thing about our education system is it's a bit like a cult. You can't see it while you're in it. And of course, we've all gone through it. We all accept and send our kids to school. We think everything's just fine and this is the only way we can do it. But it's just not true. We've got to get out of the forest to see the trees and see that it's not working for us anymore and we must do something different for those 12 years. And it might be hard, you know, it might be exhausting to think of it. But if we don't, business will go on as usual and we'll just have the same system. You write that the assignment outlined by an English teacher due in three weeks. It's an article using persuasive writing on an issue relevant to teenagers. I hope I can help out the student see you write. I have to accept that I may not. I want him to be able to write screeds on why he hates being at school. It's clear to me he's not connecting with anything going on here. I want to know his story from him. Would he have been allowed to write about why he hates school? And if he was, how would it be received? Because I was in a a university Shakespeare class and a student who participated regularly, always critical of William Shakespeare, was annoyed that to get an English degree, you had to take Shakespeare. So during final exams, instead of writing his essay in response to the teacher's questions about Shakespeare, he wrote this long essay on why Shakespeare, arguing for a choice of which literary giant they could study. And the student offered Milton as an example. He received the lowest possible grade besides for failing. So would C have been allowed to write about why he he hates school, and if he was, how do you think the school and his teacher would have reacted? Well, yeah, I mean, teachers are very constrained to delivering curriculum, so probably wouldn't have gone down well, but me as an artist would have been completely delighted <laughs> because, you know, there's just so much more a person can do and contribute than just what the curriculum demands. Uh, Penn, I think you might be tapping your microphone. We're getting a little bit of a clicking sound. But anyway, uh, you, yeah. you said that when you saw C, you said, all I see is a lost boy, a kid turning into a man and hating between, and hating being told what to do. In what way do you think school, this is again a big question, I know that you can answer this probably for the next 25 minutes, but in what way do you think school has played a role in making him what you call a lost boy? Oh, but by not listening to him, by not giving him space, by not helping him express whatever you know, problems he has, uh, which he had some, you know, he had some at home, and uh, he needed to process that somehow, and school didn't give him that option. So do you think that the chaplain wasn't necessarily as good as a 
professionally trained school counselor? Do you think that that would have, like somebody who is not religious, somebody who is not sectarian, somebody who is uh, somebody just focused on school counseling, do you think that that might have helped C, or was he getting uh, just as much help as he would have from a school counselor? Well, uh, it's interesting you raise that point because everybody has a job to do and they think that that job has a certain set of protocols and they stick to those. I think we should loosen up a little and just become people to each other. And this chaplain, chaplain, I should say, was like that. He was very real and he spoke human to human, not chaplain to student. You know what I mean? We've got to get out of our uh, labelled roles and just get a little softer with each other. Uh, I think that helps enormously for anyone to deal with a toxic environment. One thing we have seen enter the classroom in the last few decades is the diagnosis of uh, attention deficit disorder and putting students on anti-ADHD drugs, often amphetamines like Adderall and stimulants like Ritalin. How often did you see students diagnosed with ADHD and prescribed stimulants? Because here in the States, nearly one in 10 school children are diagnosed with ADHD. Well, if you want people to sit in the classroom and do their work quietly, that's not going to work for one in 10 people. And uh, that alone should tell us our education system is a bit, you know, strange. Uh, and But this isn't even questioned because we're so stuck with this as being the only way to quote-unquote educate people and enable them to be part of the workforce. But I think we should step back a little and and think deeply about what it is we really want out of our oh gosh chuck i'm out of the workforce now and so i'm seeing this from even even further out that the whole machinery we live in is all about getting an education getting a job earning money all that i think we have to really think again We are speaking with artist and former teacher's aide, Penn Donovan. She's author of School is Stupid, Notes from the Classroom. You can get Penn's book via the website smashwords.com by searching on School is Stupid. It's also available on Apple Books. You write that I was in four classes one day and barely had time to eat lunch before the maths teacher turned up. The kids were telling me they hated his class and he was retarded. Well, his teaching <laughs> style was a bit worrisome. I had been warned I could would be witnessing good and bad teaching. This guy never had the class with him. How aware do you think teachers are that they he that they don't have the class with them? Did he and do they care? Oh yes, they do, and it's very hard work for them. Uh, but they're in a system that they can't change and they have no flexibility or democracy either. Uh, staff rooms are, meetings are just like classrooms. You get one person talking at you, telling you what you've got to do. And so the teachers are getting just as much uh, flack or you know, nonsensical treatment as the students are. Uh, but they have to keep going on their job to earn money. And so they will put up with it. Everyone puts up with it because they have to. And uh, very few people question it. You ask, what is it about the classroom that precludes students being able to manage their behavior? Is it the constant do this, don't do that? Is it the closed-in space, the demand that you be passive? Is it the knowledge that they can't do the work? Is it not knowing the relevance, the point of it all? Is it the feeling that the teacher does not like them? What makes self-regulating their behavior 
almost impossible for them. Isn't there a code of some set of rules that they are supposed to play by? Isn't there some sort of orientation? Isn't what is tolerated and what is not tolerated spelled out for students at the beginning of the year? Sure. We have uh, kids going to high school now in year seven. Uh, so they're 12. I think they're 12. Yes, they're not even, they're little kids. And they get a rude shock when they enter a high school because in high school you are even more on your own and it's it's quite a shock. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm not quite sure what question you're asking there, Chuck. It's all right. I've got a better one for you. Uh, so yeah. uh, uh, you write the second math class I went to was uh, pre-vocation math, real life, useful math. This lesson was learning about calculating uh, wages. And then you talk about how you went up to a lot of the students and you tried to work with them while the teacher stayed at their desk. Is that typical? Did, are TAs supposed to be the kind of liaisons between the students and the teachers or do teachers work on, are they, are they not doing any teaching or are they working on something else? Are they working on lesson plans, grading papers, considering curricular or other tasks? Is, is, is that a typical kind of relationship that TAs, students, and uh, the uh, teacher has? Well, I don't know about the States, but here in Australia, teacher aides came online when they stopped putting kids who um, had real difficulty in standard schools into special schools. Now they they have them all in the same schools. And so they funded teacher aides so that the poor teacher didn't have to have uh, so much more work to do coping with students who couldn't cope. So, uh, But I was a different kind of teacher aide in that I had, A, been out in the world for 40 years and was a teacher myself. So uh, I had learned to teach English as a second language, which has a completely different style of teaching in that it's student-led. You must get your students practicing English straight away. So it's not like I'm the teacher up the front spouting forth for an hour. Uh, the students immediately get active. Uh, so as a teacher aide, I um, was very much more helpful for the students. And so the teacher could have a bit of a break. I uh, shot myself in the foot there, but I couldn't not do it because I could see this. I could see exactly why the kids weren't getting it and I could help them. So I did. And of course, YouTube. Every lesson, especially maths, because it has been a while for me, I would go and swat up on YouTube. It's marvelous. And I'd go into the classroom and be just in front of the students. Now, one of the appalling things I discovered was that YouTube was forbidden uh, to the students. And so they couldn't do what I did. And so any time some kid came to me in my office and said, I can't do it, I can't do it, I would tell them to get onto YouTube as soon as they got home and catch up. Wow. You write, I'm not so much surprised as shocked that nothing much has improved in the nearly 40 years since I was in high school. It's fairly hideous, and I don't know what to do with it all. Well, I have to record this. The title of it comes to mind in the first week, the title of your uh, book or writing, The Abuse of Innocence. We're all innocents here. That's Abuse of Innocence, E-N-T-S, not E-N-C-E. That said, to what extent is school, in your opinion, meant to take our innocence, C-E-N-C-E? Is it about replacing that innocence with what we are taught is the real world? Does school teach both students and educators alike about the bad things that happen in life, even normalizing those bad things as a regular and tolerated aspect of our lives, no matter how bad it is? I'm not quite sure what you're asking there. You mean, are you saying that school is like it is so that kids get used to how horrid life is? Is that what you're saying? Exactly. And at the same time, it might have that might have an impact on the teachers as well, seeing that they are trying to reproduce this normalization of a horrible world. 
<laughs> Gosh, this is sadistic, isn't it? Uh, I think that what we miss out by doing that is uh, uh, disabling us from collaborating together and helping each other. I mean, one of my ideas for school life, if I was a teacher, I would say, right, no one gets out of here with an A unless we all get an A. So if your friend next to you is not doing so well and you're you're doing okay, you sit, stop here and you help that person so that you work as a group, not as a group of individuals. Because it's every man for himself. We might, we might think it's every man for himself in the world. And so we must make that like that at school. But actually until we figure out that we can't go on like that and we must collaborate to solve what is now a worldwide issue, uh, we better start in schools. You write that it's time for C's English lesson, the student that you're working with. He's nowhere in sight, no C today. I asked the teacher after a second. She remembers, oh, yes, C is in, on internal suspension. I find C sitting alone in the interview room between the principal and deputy principal's offices. So what did you do? I asked the lad. Apparently, he talked back to the teacher, not a huge infraction, but that particular teacher, whom I don't know, nipped him in the bud. The boy has a huge reputation, and some of these teachers dislike the language he comes up with. To what extent did you see students being judged unfavorably or even favorably based on their reputation? Is there unfair judgments on students on a regular basis based on a reputation the student has? Well, of course. I mean, the teacher, the poor teacher, has got their work cut out for them, and they just can't afford to have any student rattle a cage because they've got a lot to cover in 40 minutes. And uh, cover it, they must, or they lose their job. And there, so many teachers were afraid that they would lose their jobs if their kids didn't pass. Uh, so it's the whole thing is crazy. Um, and this guy, he resisted <laughs> and was chucked out of the room it's because the teacher has to get on and do what they're paid to do. You're an artist, and it would be a huge error for me to not discuss art class. You write, it's so frustrating not seeing any activities in classes to help students learn and have fun. Surely here in an art class, as you're working in, it would be different, but I soon discover the art lesson only imparts techniques. There's no actual art happening, no chance to mess about, discover, find out, initiate projects, create problems or solve problems. It's all intellectual stuff. You can't do art in an hour anyway. It's a mode of being. It's holistic as an approach. You are an, art, are an artist. If art can't happen in an hour, and I know that you would like to just eradicate schooling, but how best within that system could that mode of being in art and its holistic approach be taught instead of the class, like let's say being one hour a day, doesn't need to be uh, one hour a day, four days a week, doesn't need to be four hours a day, one day a week. How do you think, what do you think is the best way to teach art to, in this case, 14 year olds who are in school? Well, the words teach and art in the same sentence um, disturb me a little. Let's talk about Sudbury Valley School now because there is a school in the States that started in the 70s called Sudbury Valley School, and they don't have curriculum, they don't have classes, they don't have classrooms. The kids show up, and that's it. They get to decide what they do. The school is completely democratic. I'm sure you've heard of it. It's completely democratic. The kids... Anyone who goes to the school, they all sit together and decide what happens in the school. And if a kid is obsessed with dinosaurs, he gets to delve into the dinosaur world all day, every day, for as long as he likes. And uh, until you have that 
that freedom and lack of edges. You can't find your way for yourself in this world and there's nothing about school that can be fixed, in my opinion, because of this whole uh, system that we've had for so long. You write, incident in art class yesterday, kid at the back washing up in a sink, lots of paint. He has covered both hands in yellow and blue and made green. He invites me to shake hands. No problem. We shake hands. Lovely sensation. Then he makes hand stamps all over the clean stainless steel bench. Interesting. Finally, we proceed to clean up. No biggie, but the teacher refers to this and similar incidents at the end of class in her debriefing. Chastisement. I'm flabbergasted. That little piece of fun was a chance to enjoy art. To be admonished is not fair. It would have been great for the teacher to have fetched paper and made a monoprint there and then off the bench to see what came of it. That's art, finding out something. Art missed. What does school seemingly take? Uh, how? Why does school seemingly take the art of out-of-art class, even leading to an art teacher not participating in an opportunity to commit art? Why does school take art out of art class? Well, what could that teacher have done? She's got 30 kids, half of them unwilling to follow what she's doing, which is is handing over the curriculum as she's been given. It's very, very, what's the word? Oh, it's just uh, impossible for everyone. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know what to tell you, Chuck. It's a lost cause. You write that there isn't much to do in art class except help kids get things done. There's no art lesson going on. Art is about developing emotions, confidence, and the ability to assess one's own work. They are marked on how well they stick pictures into their word books. Is actual art about developing if if sorry if actual art is about developing emotions, confidence, and the ability to assess one's own work? Does that seem to fly in the face of what they are being taught in every other class in the school? Yes, and absolutely. You know, people might have heard of Ken Robinson uh, and John Cleese. They've both done a good little YouTube videos on creativity and how it's it's um, put to death in schools. Uh, we've got to think differently about what art is. Uh, art isn't the ability, you know, the God-given talent to represent uh, the real world on a two-dimensional surface. That's not what art is. It's not even the creation of an art object. It's way more fundamental than that. It's our creative souls, and everybody has one. Uh, you know, and who, who was it that said that every five-year-old who enters the school system is an art genius, and by the, you know, a few years later, only 5% are, you know, and this whole idea that that you have talented art, to me, as an artist, is um, a mistake of understanding. Does it take the artist out of the student, then? Yes, school does, very swiftly. Some people can go on, and lucky them, but... I don't know how I survived, and actually I don't think I survived as an artist. I'm a, a failed artist. I've never been able to support myself through art because I'm not interested in art objects, even more so. Do you know, after this stint as a teacher aide, I ran away to university. I went to university for another for a postgrad degree, A, to uh, get some relief, <laughs> and B, to get my thoughts in order so I could make this book um, not too um, emotional. Uh, so I went to back to university, and it's somewhat similar to school, but it was great to be an artist and a legitimate artist for a year and to just to muck around reading about art and doing art. And that can't happen in school because of time constraints and the academia that art has to do. 
you write that every minute of the school day is controlled by something outside the student. Go here, do this, don't do that. It's unrelenting and there's little trust. After a while, I realize the staff are similarly disempowered. Does school teach us that we are not in control? And is that a good lesson to learn, seeing as how so much of our lives' decisions are controlled by others? So is that a bad lesson, especially when we are citizens in what we call democracies that we really don't have much control of? Yes, it's a very bad thing to teach people now. We And that's why I'm saying school is not fit for purpose, Chuck. We've got to stop teaching this lesson that every that everything outside ourselves is controlling us. We must get some autonomy and agency going so that we can decide together what to do because we have to get out there and do it now. I really want people to get the courage to, to get out there and, and uh, change things. You write a girl in English class sitting at the back, scruffy in a meaningful way, I love that phrase, during her own rebel thing, using her phone, the teacher asks her to hand it over, the rule is no phones in class, she refuses, I'll return it to you at the end of the lesson, the teacher says, nope, so she's sent off to see a assistant principal in charge of discipline, this seems to fall into her plans, and off she goes, her workbook falling to the floor as she leaves, she notices but keeps going, fair enough, I pick it up and have a look, only one page has been completed, Here's another student not engaging, no relationship with the teacher, nothing going on. I so admire this young woman. Why do you admire her? Because she's not buying into it. She's not, uh, I don't know her internal thoughts, whether she's very disappointed that she can't buy into it, and probably she is, uh, but still she is resisting, and I just love to see that resistance. You know, of course, as a teacher aide, you get to sit with all the resistors, all the people who aren't fitting into this academic setup. And uh, I just loved it. I think the kids were absolutely wonderful. I mean, they're hated by teachers in the classroom, but I thought they were going to save the planet, if anybody. You had this this really brilliant thought that school is always modeled on the ideal student. What happens to education when it focuses on positive outcomes for ideal students? How does that affect the education of students who are not ideal? Well, they're considered not ideal. They're considered uh, trash. I mean, there's whole levels. Uh, and, and, and this has come about because the people who work in schools – succeeded at school and so it's a closed loop of um, people types if you're if you're good at school you get to be a teacher you go to university you become an educator and it's there's no other thing coming in or out of it it's a closed loop it's so cult-like I can't tell you I'm thinking a lot about cults you don't know you're in a cult until you step out of it and if you do well at school and then become a teacher you're staying in you write, when it comes to schooling, there's so much force with so little joy. What's the point of taking joy out of school? Are you really asking me this question? Yeah, yeah. What's the, oh, okay. Okay, how does it work for the, the greater society to take the joy out? Is that what you're asking? Exactly. Because I guess, I guess it means that we will, we will not object when we have to go and do a job where uh, we have to do wrongs to other people, and so many jobs do that, you know, the police force, the border control, the all these jobs where you have to be, you know, virtually sadistic in order to earn your pay packet. And, wow, I don't think we should continue such a thing. No, no, not at all. You're right, the kids who can manage their impulsiveness give the system the benefit of the doubt. They comply and just do it without caring about its relevance. 
Are they the smart ones or the dull ones? Are good students the smartest kids in school? Well, let's, oh, well, I was, you know, I went through the whole thing, you know, oh, well, I've got to do, I've got to jump through this hoop in order to go to university and I've got to go to university to get the bit of paper and I get the bit of paper and I get more money. You know, I, I complied. How could I not? I didn't know anything else. And that's the tragedy of this is that our kids put up with this because they don't have any wider context in order to judge it. Uh, so, you know, on it goes. You write that good people doing the wrong thing. This is the what the education system perpetuates. You're good if you comply, bad if you don't. Obey, don't question it. The rebels, the people who don't care about conformity, do we really want to snuff that out in our kids? Because come the day when some systemic evil takes hold in our society, we want these people to refuse to comply and save the rest of us. Are schools teaching kids how to comply to not only any authority, but are they teaching them how to tolerate fascism, for instance, or any kind of authoritarianism, for that matter? Oh, yes. Short answer. Yes, indeed. And that's why it's got to stop, because uh, we're going down that road. Going down that and maybe this is why. Yeah. Maybe this is why. I know. That's yeah. what it kept, I kept thinking about when I was reading your work. Uh, you write teachers and students, administrators, all willing to comply, often to extreme pettiness, occupational health and safety, hierarchical politics, lack of uh, collegiate or collaborative um, behavior, and keeping people isolated from each other within the institution. Students are there by choice, but the passivity entrenched in 12 years of schooling takes a long time to fade. Is that <laughs> what they are being taught the most, to be passive and are passive workers the best workers for bosses? Sure. I mean, I, I remember when I left school, I had the thought, well, is that it? Am I ready for adulthood now? And when I look back, I was a zombie. I don't know if I still am, Chuck, but, you know, I was definitely a zombie at the end of my school life. I had, oh, this gives me the shivers. And I think uh, that, of course, and then you walk into work and you get the pay packet and you pay for things and it rolls on and you think you're you're doing well. And it's probably not happening, this wellness. I think that that's why we're seeing so many zombie movies and zombie TV series because it's it, that's what we are that's what our culture is reflecting and what's happening within our society. So it makes sense that we have such a fascination with zombies right now. You write my shock in seeing a system that is not adopted to the changing world we live in has made me wonder what's going on and how things can change for the better. The action that is needed is big and will take courage. We have to all but ditch what we're doing now. Do it with grit and confidence. Just do it. Is the this action needed anymore now that we are living in an era of climate change? What happens if we don't address education in our fight against climate change? Well, yeah, we do have to ditch it because I don't know about you, but you know about in Australia, there's smoke everywhere. So we are now seeing the very sharp edge of climate change in our local weather system. We've had drought for a long time and our beautiful forests are burning quite literally and everywhere along the East Coast here, there's smoke. And uh, so it's coming sharply into focus now that change is needed. And as so many people are saying now, we do have to uh, ask for big change. I was just saying on a commenting on a post this morning, uh, everybody down tools now. Just down tools, don't go to the supermarket, don't go to work, don't go to school, just for three days, do absolutely nothing. And let's see what that, how that shakes things up a bit. 
I would love to see a global general strike. I think that a general strike is something that we definitely need. Look what happened in Chile when they had their general strike. All of a sudden, it got everybody out together in the streets, and they started sharing their experiences and realizing that the tortures that they have experienced under neoliberalism were not their own. They were actually able to share those stories. So I completely agree with you. You write, I would like to say to parents, pull your kids out of school. Do it now. Why? Because in sending your kids to school, you're condemning them to 12 years of being herded, talked at, shouted at, and generally disenfranchised as an individual. Don't accept this. They'll learn that poor behavior is normal for people in authority. They'll be subjected to daily pettiness and not be able to either object or move away. Are you suggesting homeschooling every kid? Because parents aren't necessarily good teachers, are they? Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of people are doing that and, and all good to them. And I wanted to do it, but you you need a lot of support to to do that. And, of course, we're all thinking of curriculum. You know, our kids got to do this, this and the other. And there's paperwork that you have to comply with. Uh, uh, but I say free the kids and let them learn on their own. And we have to do that as a society because we've isolated families one from another, uh, haven't we, by having uh, – you know, little houses in the suburbs, uh, you don't know your neighbours. You really have to work very hard indeed to get a community together where you can support each other to enable your kids to learn. I'm not going to use the word teach because we've got to let the kids find their own way now and but support them in that by giving them complete access to what they want to find out about. And, you know, this is so much easier now that we have the internet. Oh, my goodness. I didn't have the internet when I was a kid. Uh, but, you know, you can go on YouTube and learn absolutely anything. The YouTube is full of the most brilliant teachers. It's just it's, uh, it's just a wonder to behold. And so there's no reason for us to not be able to learn anything we want. Let's go for it. We have been speaking with artist and former teacher's aide, Penn Donovan. She is author of School is Stupid, Notes from the Classroom, born and raised in New Zealand. Penn is an artist currently residing in Australia. Penn says she engages in art practice and writing, but completing things remains a challenge. I love that. You can get <laughs> Penn's book via the website smashwords.com by searching on School is Stupid, also available on Apple Books. One last question, and as you are a listener, you know it's the question from Al, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer or our audience is going to hate your response. You write, so embedded are we in the cult of education. It doesn't occur to us to question whether this is the best way. This is not good for us. It doesn't have to be like this. If you want the world to be a place of marvelous diversity, innovation, and creativity, do not, I repeat, do not send your child to school, not a school like this one, and this is a typical taxpayer-funded school. So, if you were a parent, would you send your kids to school? And if not, where would you send them to? Well, I am a parent, and uh, my one and only child is nearly 30, and I look back, uh, you do your best as a parent, but if I had my time over now, no, I would not send my child to school. So where would have you, like, let, let's say he was a five-year-old today, what would you do with him as a five-year-old today? Well, I'd find other people of like mind, Uh only four or five other people are needed to to give you the confidence to make that move. But you find those people and you settle with them and you do it together. You can't do it alone. It's too hard. You can't do anything alone. Penn, thank you so much for being on our show this week. I really appreciate it. It's a fascinating book and people can find it again. Just search on School is Stupid at smashwords.com. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you, Chuck. Take care.
The best radio show, live stream, podcast, your best friend has never heard of. And don't you think it's about time you tell them? This is hell. Driverless cars are not safe yet, and they won't be in our lifetimes. And I don't care how young you are, even if you're a toddler, autonomous automobile safety is nothing more than pie-in-the-sky science fiction. Not the good kind of pie or science fiction. It's more like crab apple pie in space 1999. We'll get the truth about the overhyped future of driverless driving when we have the return of sociologist Nicole M. Ashoff, who wrote the Jacobin article against self-driving cars. I keep laughing at Nicole M. Ashoff because I always feel like I'm reading it out of the New York Times. Against self-driving cars, instead of spending billions developing driverless cars, we should be building sustainable people-centered transportation. Nicole is on the editorial board at Jacobin Magazine. This is Nicole's seventh appearance on This Is Hell, dating back to March 2015. We spoke with her about her then-just-published book, The New Profits of Capital. You can find all of our interviews with Nicole at thisishell.com. Nicole's next book, The Smartphone Society, Technology, Power, and Resistance, is scheduled to come out in March 2020, and I look forward to having Nicole on the show to discuss that. This week's question from hell is, what are you getting Bernie Sanders for Christmas this year? What are you getting for Bernie Sanders for Christmas this year? Leave your response at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. The person with the best answer to this week's question from hell wins a surprise holiday gift. We're not going to spoil the surprise, but we can give you a hint of what you're getting this year, and it's one of the books that made our best books of 2019 list. Which one will it be? We're not going to ruin it. It'll be a surprise. Alex, do you have more of our listeners' answers to this week's question from hell? I know you do, Alex. Oh, hey, where'd Alex go? I think Alex might be having an emergency somewhere, so let me tell you what the next couple of books are when it comes to our favorite books featured here on This Is Hell in 2019. I wonder what happened to Alex. All of a sudden, he's disappeared. This is why we need more people to be working on the show, so if you'd like to volunteer as a producer or board operator, please contact us at chuck at thisishell.com. Hey, Alex is back. Alex, do we have more of our listeners' answers to this week's question from hell? Uh, Yeah, we have one more. So what happened? Oh, I was calling Nicole. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, she has a new book out in uh, March. Yeah, I just mentioned that on the show. Oh, I should have <laughs> been in here. Uh, Mel was... Now I have to, uh, when I go outside to call guests, to yeah. let them know I'm going to call them back via Skype, I have to apologize for Mel yowling in the background. <laughs> you uh, should just go up to my office, dude. What are you getting Bernie Sanders for Christmas? Via email, Mike N says, my wife. <laughs> Glad that's the only response I had to read. <laughs> wow. Wow, Mike. I know Mike. He's been listening to the show forever. Mike. I know his wife. Mike. Leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and you'll have a chance at winning one of the books that made this year's list of favorite titles to be featured here on This Is Hell in 2019. All week we're announcing our favorite books to be featured on This Is Hell this year. So far we've named six of the titles, and we'll be sharing the entire list following our final hour of this week's show, which we stream live every Wednesday beginning at 10 a.m. Central Daylight Time. The next book to make our list in no particular order of preference is by yet another author we featured during Listener Appreciation Month, as they were suggested by a listener, and I know this is kind of cheating, but that listener was our very own producer, Alex Jerry. 
It's not like I can stop him. Alex schedules all our guests. There are rules that guide life for many within the black community. When you live in a system that is, by design, unjust for you, while doling out justice for those who are privileged with white supremacy, obeying that law would be furthering the very injustice that dominates your life. This moral quandary leads many to embrace fugitivity, a life outside the law, which is times kind of enjoyable and under commons of resilience and survival that are necessary when you are thrust into an unjust world that has criminalized you the moment you leave the womb as an african-american another of our favorite books of 2019 is them goon rules fugitive essays on radical black feminism by black feminist theorist transgender studies critical theory and contemporary African-American literature scholar Marquise Bay. In May, Northwestern University announced that it had brought Marquise on board as an assistant professor. In Northwestern's announcement of Marquise's writing or hiring, they state that he will be offering courses in black political and social life as well as black vernacular as a theoretical praxis, which sounds kind of fascinating. Marquise has other pedagogical interests in black queer studies the genre of the essays and histories of radical politics. I want to thank Alex for suggesting Marquise because it was easily one of my very favorite conversations this year. That makes our next book on our list of books that are the our favorites featured on the show in 2019, Them Goon Rules, Fugitive Essays on Radical Black Feminism by Marquise Bay. Follow Marquise on Twitter at Marquise D. Bay, that's B-E-Y. Here are July 20th interview with Marquise at thisishell.com. The eighth title to make our best books list of 2019 was a book that past guest Liza Featherstone said she could not shut up about. Liza word, Liza's words, not ours, do not in any way think that we put those words into her mouth. Another past guest, Lynn Siegel, who you may remember being on our show to discuss radical happiness, says this book confronts the dystopic present to insist upon the necessity for building unifying solidarities across our proliferating political differences. The next book to make our list for 2019 is Comrade, an essay on political belonging by political philosopher Jody Dean. Another past guest on our show, Robin D.G. Kelly, insists, read Comrade, be Comrades. Jody's writing is essential for anyone seeking real transformative social change. Jody explains what it's like to be a comrade, why we should want to be comrades, and why comrade is not as bad a word as it's been made out to be. If we truly want the transformative change that we desire, we are going to have to change the way we relate with each other politically. And that means the end of the hyper-individualism of neoliberalism, where the only political action is one done by yourself for yourself. Jody is professor of political science at Hobart and William Smith Colleges, Follow Jody on Twitter at Jody7768. Find her writing at jdeanicite.typepad.com. Makes our next book in our list of best books featured here on This Is Hell. Comrade, an essay on political belonging by Jody Dean. Find uh, our September 25th interview with Jody at our website, thisishell.com. The next book to make our favorite books list of 2019 argues Clarence Thomas is a black 
nationalist. And it's not like he's trying to keep it a secret. So why does it seem like a secret? Why isn't Thomas's black nationalism obvious to those who study him and report on his rulings? It's because Thomas's black nationalism isn't the leftist black nationalism you've heard so much about here on This Is Hell. Just like black politics, black nationalism is not monolithic, with all African Americans sharing the exact same view on the matter, no matter what the two major political parties and their surrogates in the media want you to believe. They just want you to think that all black political thought is monolithic. Pretty racist, right? Our next book to make the list is The Enigma of Clarence Thomas by political science scholar Corey Robin. Yep, Clarence Thomas is all about Malcolm X and the black struggle, but you wouldn't know it if you read his rulings. Actually, his rulings <laughs> reveal it. It's just that apparently nobody knows black nationalism when they see it, especially white people, especially conservative black nationalism, which is a thing, liberals. Corey teaches political science at Brooklyn College and the City University of New York Graduate Center. Follow Corey on Twitter at Corey Robin makes our next book in the list of best books to be featured here on This Is Hell, The Enigma of Clarence Thomas by Corey Robin. Find out more about Corey at his own website, CoreyRobin.com. Listen to our October 11th interview with Corey again at our website, ThisIsHell.com. We'll reveal two more of our favorite books for 2019 to be featured here on This Is Hell. Following our next guest coming up this week, we'll learn why safe driverless cars are an impossibility and how the pursuit of the technology is a detriment to sustainable transportation in our era of climate change. Then later on this week's show, we'll find out all about the Lebanon Revolution, the Lebanese Revolution, and we'll wrap up this week as we do most week's shows, and that's with a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry, live from the nightmare of want, this is hell. There's so much hype coming from the media tech companies and car makers about driverless cars, you'd think safe autonomous automobiles are right around the corner. You also might assume there's some incredible popular demand for cars without drivers and that we will seamlessly accept them as part of our regular daily transportation. But is any of that hype true? Returning to This Is Hell to give us the skinny on driverless cars, sociologist Nicole M. Ashoff is author of the Jacobin article, Against self-driving cars, instead of spending billions developing driverless cars, we should be building sustainable, people-centered transportation. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Nicole. Hi, Chuck. i got to ask you a question. In all your stuff, it says Nicole M. Ashoff. Is there another Nicole <laughs> Ashoff? i got to know, or is this just you're obsessed with New York Times uh, style? <laughs> you know, I think I put that M in there once, and it just has stuck around. I don't even actually use it on my book covers, but there is actually another Nicole Ashoff out there. I see her sometimes when I'm Googling myself, and I think she lives in Nebraska. The first time we had Sarah Jaffe on the show, somebody sent me an email saying, I can't believe you're going to have the jazz singer Sarah Jaffe on your show. Now, there's somebody who should go with a middle initial, you know? Uh, I don't know. So you write, Uber lost its license to operate in London last November. Uh, Transport for London determined that the uh, ride-sharing program hadn't done enough to tackle fraud on its platform, including fraud committed by drivers who had managed to game Uber's system, driving under false identities after they had been dismissed or suspended. As a past guest on our show, Chris uh, Brooks, who reported also at Jacobin, 
that in Uber's largest European market, London, an employment tribunal ruled that drivers are not independent contractors, but workers entitled to minimum wage protections and holiday pay. So Uber drivers were gaming the system, which lacked oversight while they were being exploited by Uber. That does not sound like the greatest employer-employee relationship. To what extent do you think Uber's exploitation of their workers led the workers to try to game the system? Does a toxic relationship potentially lead to a company that is toxic, even an industry that is toxic? For sure. Absolutely. I led with this uh, just as kind of a hook to think about, you know, the actual driverless car. But, you know, we could have a whole other series of articles just on what a terrible company Uber is for its employees, not all of its employees, but primarily the people who are actually driving uh, for the company, yet who Uber claims are not its employees. So it's really exciting to see how that relationship is evolving over time uh, and that, you know, workers are finally getting recognized for the job that they do there. You write it's distressing news for Uber executives already under pressure to boost the company's sagging share price. But Uber has a plan. It's going to get rid of its drivers altogether and run its business through a fleet of self-driving cars. So is the sharing economy turning out to be the replacement by robots economy? What effect could this have on the economy as a whole when a new source of jobs that a lot of people depend upon, a lot of people I know depend upon, what happens to our economy I know that they're not going, these jobs aren't going to go away because they're not going to be come up with driverless cars. But let's just say they did come up with driverless cars. What impact would that have on the people who depend upon our economy? Well, I mean, certainly if we think about, this is a big fear that people have. And I think it's used to frighten working people into accepting terrible policies, right? Because for decades, we've been told that we are on the cusp of technology destroying all of, you know, average people's jobs. Any second a robot is going to take your job. Well, it's empirically not true, but it's also a very useful kind of hammer to bash down any kind of dissent from, you know, ordinary people because it's just yet another reason to be afraid. Now, if, you know, by chance, you know, the possibility of that technology existed, that still doesn't mean that we have to just sort of swallow it. You know, part of it is, is sort of taking control of technology and saying, this is the kind of technology we want, and this is the kind of technology we don't want. And I think, you know, ordinary people feel like, well, I don't really understand the technology, so I can't say what I want or don't want. And I think that's that's the wrong approach. Why do we seemingly just accept any new technology when Uber came out? Friends of mine were asking me, so are you going to be using Uber or not? They were all using Uber. And I said, I I will never, ever use Uber. I think it's horrible because I live in a community of a a Desi population that depends upon being cab drivers who have all put in tens of thousands of dollars into taxi medallions. I would feel like a a traitor to my neighbors for doing it, even despite the the fact that I have friends who depend upon Uber. So why do we seemingly accept whatever new technology without considering any of the morality or the ethics behind it? Well, that's a big question. I mean, when you think about yourself and why you're, you're immediately thinking about the people who are involved in this technology, right? You think about its relationship to working people. Whereas I think, you know, a lot of people don't necessarily think about the people that are involved in, say, the sharing economy, if we want to use that term or even just in tech companies in general, right? Because when you, when you read about technology, 
And she, the, the people often are not there. Like you read about the sort of innovators at the top, but the actual thousands and thousands of people who make it work are pushed, you know, behind the curtain so that it looks more exciting. Somehow it's more exciting if, if we think it's, you know, just working on its own without people actually involved. So we're not encouraged to think about how all of the new tech that's coming out of Silicon Valley relies on a whole army of sort of low-paid, you know, precarious work. So part of, you know, pushing back against that kind of story is to really highlight, which I think is happening now, you know, how reliant these kinds of new apps and, and you know, networks and ways of organizing our life, how reliant they are on just sort of regular people doing shit jobs. And that reminds me that Nicole's next book is The Smartphone Society, Technology, Power, and Resistance, which is scheduled to come out in March 2020. And it sounds like you've been writing and doing a ton of research on that book because that's, <laughs> your response sounded very much like that. You write the plan to eliminate drivers isn't exactly new. Former CEO Travis Kalanick of Uber promised back in 2015 that the company would operate an entirely driverless fleet by 2030. Kalanick was sidelined in Uber's quest for respectability, but his dream lives on in 2018 the company spent $475 million on autonomous fleet development. I know that this is not what your article was about. You weren't talking that much about Uber. You were at points, but what what happened to Travis Kalanick? Travis Kalanick is, in, he's, he's not alone, actually. He's part of this whole kind of like tech culture of empowered men who are, you know, told by, you know, all of these kind of toadies around them that they're great and wonderful and doing something no one has ever done before. And they're fueled by billions of dollars from venture capital money. And it's like they're rewarded for terrible behavior. So it's like, yeah, he might've had a couple ideas and he figured out how to put them together and he's a smart enough guy, but you know, ultimately he became a liability in the longer term project of creating this kind of, uh, you know, platform to make money for investors. So he was sidelined because he was an embarrassment. Because of stuff that he was doing outside of the workplace or at the workplace yeah. that was abusive? Both, actually. He was doing, you know, he was, it was both in his behavior outside the workplace, but also in his role in sort of, you know, making all of the uh, ridiculous things that were happening inside the workplace seem okay, right? And sort of uh, allowing for that kind of toxic culture to reproduce itself. Nicole, I have to admit, I am in a certain way for driverless cars for a completely selfish reason, so I'm really not all that supportive of the idea of driverless cars. But my selfish reasoning is that I was born in Detroit, raised just across 8 Mile Road from Detroit, and that whole time I was inundated with car culture. But I'm legally blind, so I cannot legally drive a car, and any time I have been behind the wheel has been incredibly frightening. My legally blind brother actually almost hit me while he was driving a car miles away from my house. So having an automated car that can drive me anywhere, anytime would be awesome, especially now with Illinois' decriminalization of weed. Nicole, will driverless cars (laughs) give disabled people like myself more accessibility to transportation and more mobility? Yeah, for sure. I mean, but part of that is to say, okay, yes, obviously we are, I'm not anti-technology and I, and I am, and I, as I say in the article, actually, I'm all for actually using AI and neural networks and machine learning, however you want to classify it. 
you know, in, in addition to GPS and these sensors and cameras to make our cars safer, right? So I'm all for doing that. And I think it's good research. And I do think that we have to actually think about how, making mobility easier for people like you, right? Who actually can't get into the car and drive. How do we actually do that? But we have to also think about the bigger picture, right? Like what is the best, most sensible, safest, and most, you know, sort of ecologically sustainable way of creating transportation for the greatest number of people? And self-driving cars just isn't it. So, uh, (laughs) no, it is not it. I don't think so either. You write Waymo, Google's self-driving car division, buys cars from Jaguar, Landover, and Chrysler. Apple and Uber have both purchased autonomous vehicle startups, and Uber is working with Volvo. Honda has attached itself to Cruise, General Motors' driverless division, while Ford and Amazon are making out a partnership. Hawaii is uh, providing the AI muscle for a number of joint ventures, while Hyundai has invested in roughly 20 companies working on autonomous driving, some of which are direct rivals of Uber. Behind the scenes, SoftBank, through its Saudi-backed $100 billion vision fund, has dumped billions into autonomous technology development at Toyota, GM, and Uber. This would suggest that many think there's a lot of promise in driverless cars, that investing in driverless cars will be profitable. What do you think is the attraction to investing in self-driving cars? Well, there are a few different camps. I think for there's one sort of element which is like, Nobody wants to, you know, it's kind of like fear of missing out, right? No one wants to miss the boat in case someone does come up with, you know, the idea is in case someone does come up with sort of like a viable commercial self-driving car, no company wants to just not have been a part of that at all. That's part of it. Part of it is that there's a lot of money floating around looking for any chance at a profitable, uh, you know, kind of venture. That's also the case. So the, I, I think part of the thinking is like more sensible people anyway are saying, all right, maybe we don't get to the fully driverless uh, stage, but a lot of the stuff that we're developing, you know, sensors and cameras and, and you know, this, you know, increased software, AI software in cars, uh, that stuff's all going to be useful just to make driving safer. So that's part of it. Um, but there's also a whole camp of people who are, you know, I think less sensible who are just saying, no, the ultimate goal is to get to self-driving cars, right? Where people can actually, you know, people like Elon Musk are saying, you know, your car is just sitting in your driveway all day when it could be out, uh, you know, making money for you as a taxi every day. That's a whole nother camp of people who actually do believe that. And that's really where we need to be pushing back because those kind of voices have a lot more sway uh, than they should have. So, Nicole, you just said because there's lots of money floating around. What does yeah. that lots of money floating around to you reveal about the state of the world economy? Because it would seem to me that if there's lots of money floating around, then there's lots of money that could be used for public transportation. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we need to make this point more. I mean, when we look about this, all this money that's floating around, and it's a big conversation as to sort of why it's floating around. We can say, well, it's, it's partly that we've been obsessed with sort of fixes uh, using kind of monetary policy that's clearly not working, but it's creating this kind of gushes of capital looking for places to invest. Uh, and, you know, where does it go? So it goes into these kind of, you know, dubious projects. Whereas when, if we had a sort of stronger vision about, okay, what is it that we actually want for transportation? We could direct it to, toward that end, right? And, and 
it's like over and over we keep saying, okay, we need to improve infrastructure, right? Well, this is part of improving our country's infrastructure, thinking about building the next generation of transportation. So how good is this construction of all of these uh, driverless cars or the technology being put into them or even the parts shops around the country that give uh, that make the parts for the cars? How good is this for workers at car companies and their affiliated uh, sources for uh, material? Does uh, driverless cars, do driverless cars mean more jobs for workers at the big three? Maybe. I don't know. I mean, part of for for it to be good for for you know auto workers, auto workers have to you know increase their bargaining power. Just because there are more jobs doesn't necessarily mean those jobs are going to be better, right? The only way that they're going to benefit from this is to actually demand you know a, a fair share of the pie. So that's a whole other story. You write how experts say that autonomous vehicles equipped with LiDAR sensors, high-definition maps combined with GPS and artificial neural networks will finally make driving safe. Is making cars safe simply a step towards something else? Are they, are they claiming cars will be more safe, but the plan is to do far more than making cars more safe? You know, I think the vision is pretty muddled. I think if you're if if you think about a company like Volvo, which I mentioned in here, um, I think that their goal is really like their brand is safety, and it has been for a long time. For so for them, I think it really is about like you know increasing the safety of their vehicles. A company like Uber or you know sort of like a, a tech investor like SoftBank or something, I think they might have a different kind of vision. I I, I don't think we can kind of lump it all together, but. You know, I I don't have a problem with, you know, developing this kind of technology to make cars safer. We should make cars safer. But at the same time, we should also be developing different types of transportation, right? Like cars aren't going anywhere. Most of the country needs a car to get to work because we simply don't have another way to get to work for most people. So we do need cars to be safer. We need long haul trucking to be safer, right? But we also need to start working in a more systematic way toward developing more buses and trains and, you know, public transportation so that we can slowly move away from our heavy dependence on cars. Is our public resources, is the government funding any of this driverless technology? Because, you know, I don't mind if all of these huge corporations are wasting their money on this, but it's kind of a different level of being offended if I find out that the government is also funding this, if not creating the technology, then giving it away for free. So is there any government uh, subsidization of this industry? Well, certainly if we think, we can think about like tech more generally and to say like a lot of the, like most of the technology that is incorporated into like our smartphones and, you know, the kinds of research that's been done on, um, you know, artificial neural networks, like most of this comes originally out of universities that are being funded by federal money. So that's true. And we do, and we, there is definitely, uh, you know, the annoying trend of, you know, the stuff is funded by public money and then it's, you know, commodified by tech companies. That's certainly true. But I, I mean, I think the, the vast majority of the money now that's going into self-driving cars is coming from the private sector. And in, in, in the sense of like this immediate stuff is going on. But certainly if you were to look upstream, right, at the flow of ideas, that stuff is for sure and has been funded by the federal government. One concern with tech companies and automation is always privacy and corporate surveillance. Would driverless cars make us more open to being spied upon by who knows who? You know, 
that was a question that I kind of, and I was, I it ended up being like a kind of shorter piece than I was thinking about because I was thinking about the sort of thinking, you know, the ideas that Volvo is putting out there saying like, all right, we're going to have driver facing cameras and AI that can tell if you are intoxicated. But this starts to raise real questions, right? About uh, the data that you'll be generating uh, in your, you know, modified vehicle and who's going to have access to this data, right? Uh, is it going to just be localized or is, is, you know, the car and tech company going to be collecting all that data? And who, who's going to know if you are a terrible driver, right? Like, <laughs> that, that gets added to your, I mean, I guess your insurance company already knows if you're, you know, if you have a bunch of accidents, but a more general kind of fine-tuned, you know, data that you create every day by driving. We do need to really ask these questions. You write how Tesla boss Elon Musk promises that his company's car will be fully autonomous by the end of 2019 this year. And by the end of 2020, he'd be positioned to participate in Tesla's driverless taxi service. In a win-win, Tesla owners will send their cars out each day to work as taxis. Well, you were, you were pointing this out before. While the company gets a healthy cut of the fares, I just started laughing because I know that none of that is going to happen. Uh, <laughs> who will be able to afford these cars that can go pick up passengers all day? Would it lead to... Maybe an increased inequality because I think the cheapest Tesla, and I know you know more than I do. I think it's the Tesla three. It's thirty eight thousand dollars, and I think that model might have been stopped. And I, you know, me and my girlfriend, we can't afford a thirty eight thousand dollar car. We're thinking about getting a new one, and there's no way we can spend half that much money. So, does this just make it so rich people will be making more money? No one who buys a $38,000 car needs to rent their car out during the day as a taxi. This just blows my mind that Elon Musk can say whatever he wants, and then everyone repeats what he says as if it is fact, right? And this is a story that actually shapes, like, you know, city planners and people who are thinking about transportation that, you know, he gets to be the idea maker, Musk does. Like, he gets to, you know have a seat at the table for thinking about how we should redesign our cities, which is absolutely ludicrous. And he was trying to do it here in Chicago with that high-speed train that he was going to have that went from the Loop to O'Hare that was clearly only going to be for the rich to avoid all of the nasty people on public transit. You write the efficiency story is often melded with a sustainability story. Autonomous cars, it is imagined, will all be electric and people will share them, thus reducing the overall number of cars on the road. Ideally, no CO2 emissions and we'll all be sharing them, giving everyone easy and equal access to transportation. And how will there be fewer cars on the road? I don't get it. With everyone having a driverless car that's going out and picking up everyone, that seems like a lot more cars. Yeah, and an endless traffic jam because the way that right now, anyway, self-driving cars work is that they are, I don't know, have you ever seen uh, Total Recall? Yes. To me, I just it's going to be like Johnny Cab because it's like it, it all works unless some slight thing goes wrong, like some, you know, villains are chasing you. And then the car doesn't work properly because it doesn't understand your instructions. <laughs> so it's just going to be an endless traffic jam. But, yeah, I mean, these are these are questions that are very sensible questions. Yet the stories we read over and over are just repeating to us. No, no. Self-driving cars are coming and they're going to be great and we just need to plan for them and there's nothing we can do. And if, and if also this, this line, like if you say that you don't want self-driving cars, then you're painted as someone who is afraid of technology. I think the most fascinating thing about that response was that you knew the name of the cab company and 
<laughs> well, Total Recall is actually one of my favorite movies. So, you know, I should I should have started with something about Total Recall. That would have been cooler. But oh so well. so well, quickly, how do you feel about the remake? Oh, I didn't watch that. Oh, good for you. Good for you. We're in the same boat. <laughs> so, uh, like, which is, I guess, not very mature. But I was angry that they were remaking it, and I didn't watch it. <laughs> I kind of felt the same way. Do we know? Do we know to what degree there is? public demand for driverless cars? You know, actually, I don't know. Um, Probably someone does know. I didn't, I I never bothered to look that up. But, uh, you know, my, when I talk to people about it, it's kind of like uh, lumped into a broader technology story where people just feel disempowered. And they're like, yeah, technology, of course, it's going to just destroy all of our jobs. You know, whereas it's not, you know, or people say, well, I don't really see how it's going to work, or, well, I guess they'll figure it out. These are the kind of responses. That, but this, that's like an anecdotal answer. There's probably someone who's actually polled people on this. You write these narratives are repeated over and over again by corporate executives, city planners, transportation experts, and tech journalists. Auto- autonomous cars are just around the corner, we're told, which is great because apparently we've always wanted them. And even if we didn't, they're coming anyway. So we need to redesign our cities and roads to accommodate them. Is redesigning our cities to accommodate driverless cars compatible with redesigning cities like the Green New Deal would like, for instance, in addressing climate change? No. I mean, I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and they're trying to put bike lanes in around the city. And that itself, because so here I should have I'll, I'll preface it with this. Some people are now saying, OK, self-dri- self-driving cars are, are not actually safe. So what we should do is create like separate and closed lanes for them. That So there's just special lanes in the city so that they can't hurt anyone. And and, you know, it'll be great. This is this is literally what people are talking about doing, and it's like in I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Right now, we can't even make special lanes for bikes. People are constantly parking parked in the bike lane, or walking in the bike lane, or just you know driving in the bike lane. It's chaos. I I don't. It's again. It's like this kind of story that doesn't have any connection to the real lived experience of you know people in cities. So it's. It's a good juxtaposition, actually, thinking about what would a, how would a Green New Deal sort of redesign our cities and how would a self-driving car vision redesign our cities. One looks pretty good and the other looks pretty awful. Because, you know, those bike lanes really keep uh, bicyclists safe. I've never heard of anybody ever being hit by a car in a bike lane. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh, God. So uh, we are speaking with sociologist Nicole Ashoff. Nicole M. Ashoff. She is the author of the Jackman <laughs> article against self-driving cars. Instead of spending billions developing driverless cars, we should be building sustainable people-centered transportation. So is, uh, well, you write the stories we tell about self-driving cars. However, they just don't hold up. For one thing, we have no good evidence that self-driving cars are safer than human operators. Thanks to an incredibly business-friendly National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, the data we get from companies testing autonomous driving tech is mostly voluntarily submitted self assessments that read like marketing brochures. Are we being asked to now completely redesign cities based on potentially misleading data from companies that would profit from such redesign and have no outside oversight? Because, Nicole, this is starting to sound a lot like the monorail on The Simpsons. (laughs) I almost started singing the song. I think you should sing the song, Chuck. (laughs) The monorail song. (laughs) Absolutely not. (laughs) 
Um, I, I'm not even sure what we're getting from these, from the what the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, that's a long acronym, is getting from these car and tech companies even qualifies as data. I mean, it's like it's, it's self-assessments that there, there are no uh, sort of even guidelines or requirements for these self-assessments and the companies don't even have to provide it. It's, it's hilarious, except that it's awful. I mean, really, there's no regulation or oversight. And, you know, as we can see, actually, we get, we, we, everyone read and, and it was horrifying the story of the person who was killed in Arizona when she was trying to cross the street with her bicycle by the, um, the driverless car. But, you know, there's also all of these stories that we don't hear about as much of Tesla cars who are already sort of, you know, partially self-driving who, uh, you know, we, we don't hear stories about what's happening to them. And we really have no kind of oversight into, into determining the process even that we're developing these cars. It's just kind of the wild west. You point out that companies brag about all the miles they're clocking in their autonomous vehicles, but these are not quality miles. Instead, they are primarily miles generated in geo-fenced areas that eliminate factors such as inclement weather or poor lane markings. But the solution is not to add more miles. It isn't possible to add enough miles using current development strategies. I love this breakdown that you give. As a recent report, or the recent report gives, argued to determine, for example, whether self-driving cars were even 20% safer than human-operated vehicles with 95% confidence would require autonomous vehicles to be driven more than 11 billion miles to detect this difference, with a fleet of 100 autonomous vehicles being test-driven 24 hours a day, 365 days a year at an average speed of 25 miles per hour. This would take 518 years, about half a millennium. That suggests that we'll never know if driverless cars are more safe than those driven by humans, which means one of two things. One, that driverless cars will never be on the roads because they will never be determined to be safe or not, at least in our lifetimes. Or two, car and tech companies will, with a compliant NHTSA will allow them onto the roads without actually knowing if they are more or less safe than human-driven cars. Either way, why would investors want to put money in companies whose products will never be determined to be safe or not and just might be put on the road in a very dangerous situation? Is the real innovation of autonomous driving not driverless cars but driver-assist technology? Well, in the happy story, that's the answer. In the less happy story, they get put on the cars, on the roads, even if they're not safer. And when you ask the question about sort of why are investors doing this, investors are are not interested in the long haul story of what will happen. They're interested in making a profit after some time, right? After an IPO or after they cash out, you know, their special shares, right? This is always, this is part of the problem with capitalism. We have this, you know, short-termism and the short-term thinking that it's like no one is really thinking, well, what is what is really going to happen five or 10 years down the road? They're saying, let me dump some money into this so that I can get a return, you know, five quarters from now. You argue that, moreover, scientists aren't even sure how to proceed beyond level two driverless tech, in which drivers are, for the most part, along for the ride as the car does its thing, but are expected to intervene quickly if something goes wrong. In tests conducted by numerous companies, professional drivers, even if there were two drivers in the car, kept falling asleep, and even if they were alerted, took a considerable time, upwards of 45 seconds, to regain situational awareness, far too long to prevent a tragic accident. Driving, especially for long stretches, can be 
hypnotically boring, especially on longer drives. I've even seen people driving standard cars falling asleep behind the wheel, unfortunately, on a regular basis. Back in March 2017, we spoke with Dr. Maya Rockymore, MD, co-author of the Global Policy Solutions Report, Stick Shift, Autonomous Vehicles, Driving Jobs, and the Future of Work. Maya explained that the promise of driverless cars was supposed to have a far greater impact not on the individual car owner, but on the trucking industry, as you were pointing out earlier, long-haul trucking, and that all those trucks on the road would be only assisted by a driver when necessary or completely autonomous as the trucking industry had hoped. Maya pointed out that this would be devastating for truckers who would be automated out of a job. Is there any more progress being made in autonomous driverless driving technology when it comes to trucking? Is trucking moving further, uh, moving forward farther than uh, just the individual car user? Uh, you know, I think there, there is stuff, there's, there they're actually the the uh, guy who's being sued by uh, Google, Google self-driving Waymo, their self-driving car unit. He got the Anthony Lewandowski, who was sued for stealing uh, ideas from them. He, until recently, was uh, the head of a new startup, which is trying to, you, you know, develop sort of like driver assist technology for long haul trucking. You know, I'm for uh, doing that to some degree because long haul trucking is a major uh, source of employment employment for a lot of you know ordinary people. It's a job that you can get and you can make fairly decent money. So part of what we need to do is definitely to make trucking safer. Um, but it's also you know another way to make it safer is just to actually have much uh, stricter health and safety regulations for truck drivers to not allow the companies that they drive for to exploit them and make them drive for really unsafe lengths of time, right? That's a very simple thing that requires zero technology. And it's like, this also needs to be part of the conversation. But we also, when we're thinking, you know, you mentioned the Green New Deal, you know, when we're building towards something uh, better in the future, we talk about it as a just transition, right? So the idea is you don't just throw all, all of these truck drivers out of work when you say let's actually, you know, uh, increase our, uh, our, our train networks, right, which require fewer operators. Instead, you, you consciously create a technological path where you create new jobs for truck drivers, right? That has to be part of our vision, to recognize that people rely on these jobs and to develop our technology and our plans accordingly. Would we not have these newer, these new safer driving technologies, these assist driving technologies, if they were not pursuing the end goal of driverless driving? Yeah, I think we could still. I mean, again, it's part of like, what is your vision? You can say, all right, how do we actually use all of this uh, to make driving safer, assuming that we have a human in the driver's seat, right? We would be pursuing, uh, you know, a parallel and sometimes overlapping path. The question is sort of what is your, what is your end goal and how is that shaping the kinds of questions you ask? And, and so this is, so yeah, I think the path might be slightly different, but could we actually, you know, develop this technology for a kind of sustainable people-centered, you know, transportation vision? Of course. I mean, this is the, the favorite kind of mantra of Silicon Valley. It's like, if you don't share our goals, then you don't believe in technology, right? Or if you don't share our goals, we will be, uh, you know, uh, not reaching our full potential, you know, in terms of technology, which is just false. 
It's all our fault, Nicole. It's all our fault. <laughs> you write that driverless cars are an efficient solution to wasted resources makes no sense whatsoever. One fairly obvious problem is that while cars are big, heavy, and expensive, they're not particularly robust. If people rent them out all day while they're at work, they'll depreciate rapidly, which seems so obvious that you would think someone at Tesla or any car or tech company would have already figured this out. So why is there so much coverage of anything having to do with driverless car technology on the nightly news, on the cable uh, outlets, online, and even in print newspapers and on news radio stations? If it's so obvious that one of the rationalizations being offered for driverless cars makes absolutely no sense whatsoever, why so much news coverage one of the things driverless cars promises doesn't make any sense while simultaneously for driverless cars to be considered safe for street driving would take hundreds of years. So why the media excitement? I don't know, Chuck. <laughs> I mean, it, it does make you ask some questions about our media. Um, no, but I mean, that's a flip answer, right? Part of the reason uh, is that there's, there's a lot of money and attention going towards Silicon Valley and because Silicon Valley has created some, you know, the companies in Silicon Valley have created some really cool things. And they're also offering kind of like a vision of the future that's more exciting than austerity and, you know, belt tightening, which has been like the, the past 30 years of, of, of basically the, the story we're getting from, uh, you know, capital and Wall Street. So there's a lot of kind of factors there. The, the the key for me is to just sort of empower people to ask the basic questions like, is this something we want? Does this sound feasible? Is this the best way, uh, you know, to develop to redevelop transportation? Questions like that. You wonder why would people be more willing to share their car just because it was an autonomous vehicle. Granted, there has been some interest in car sharing through apps like Get Around and Drivey, Drivey, I don't know. But car sharing hasn't taken off for the simple reason that most people can't risk being without transportation or the possibility that the stranger might destroy their vehicle. Why would you want why would you not want to have access to your car? What happens if someone in your home has a medical emergency and needs to be taken to hospital. Has anyone done any study that you are aware of that would suggest people have no problem doing without their car and complete strangers being in it all day long and presumably all night long while you're sleeping? Because I've opened the door for a cab on New Year's Eve and there was a shower curtain over the back seat to protect the upholstery from the inevitable vomit that the driver told me he would definitely happen Overnight. So why would, is there any sense that people would want to send their $38,000 car out to people partying on New Year's Eve and puking all over their car? No. And that's why car sharing hasn't taken off. Honestly, it's really small. I think that there are, you know, people who live in there, there's a very small sort of demographic of people who this might appeal to. But for the most part, no, it's not appealing to people because they spent a bunch of money on their car and they want it when they need it. And if they, you know, they need to run and get the kids or go to the grocery store and they don't want someone, everyone thinks they're a good driver and everyone else is a terrible driver. <laughs> so it's like that doesn't lend itself to car sharing. 
No, it doesn't. Nothing whatsoever. Uh, uh, you write that a far bigger problem, however, is one of vision. Self-driving car advocates are remarkably oblivious to the developmental imperatives of a landscape characterized by looming climate catastrophe, underinvestment in basic life-saving science, resource depletion, and yawing inequality. Instead, they zero in on ordinary working people, drivers, as the problem and support dumping hundreds of billions of dollars into dubious projects that operate on the assumption that if we can just figure out how to eliminate drivers from the equation, poof, we'll be able to leapfrog the hard political work of developing sustainable transportation. Do they have to be oblivious, seemingly in climate change denialism, to be pursuing driverless car technology? Is autonomous driving an expression of climate change denialism? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll go with yeah on that. I don't 100% believe that. But I really, you know, when we're thinking about sort of the irrationality of capitalism, it's like there are hundreds of billions of dollars being dumped into this driverless car vision that could be channeled toward developing, you know, public transportation and sustainable transportation. I mean, it's really as simple as that. And if you think about, you know, the kinds of uh, challenges that face us in terms of cutting, you know, carbon emissions, you know, to be dumping all of this energy and all of these resources into what is essentially an unsustainable and, and ecologically sort of suicidal form of transportation in the long run. You know, you really have to question that and to say, you know, how is this your big plan, right, to have uh, just cars without people in them, individual cars, sort of taking it right, you know, this is your plan for the future. That doesn't make any sense. To what degree is driverless driving being pursued because it is the individual, not the collective response to sustainable transportation? Is this just a neoliberal solution, a market-based solution to address any problems we have with transportation? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point, Chuck. That's definitely part of it. You know, this it, it fits within the you know, sort of, I am going to have all of the perfect products and I want to be super high tech and, oh, maybe it'll also be green and I can plug my car in so I won't feel so bad about it, right? So, so it's definitely that element uh, is, is also there. One last question for you, Nicole. And as you know, our final question is always the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. We've been speaking with <laughs> Nicole M., Ashoff, author of the Jacobin article against self-driving cars. I'm going to do that every time you're on the show from now on. I'm going to stall and linger on that. Um, you can find out more about Nicole at NicoleAshoff.com. Follow her on Twitter at Nicole Ashoff. Her next book, The Smart Phone Society, Technology, Power, and Resistance is scheduled to come out in March 2020, and we will definitely have her back on when that book is released. So our question from hell for you, Nicole, is this is stupid. What kind of car do you drive, or what was the last car you drove? I drive a Ford Escape. And the reason why I drive a Ford Escape is because I wrote my dissertation on the auto industry, and I uh, had to buy a union-made car. So that's why you have a Ford Escape. I thought it was just because... Did you get it used, by the way? No, I didn't, because I don't know how to work on cars, and I have no tools. (laughs) So I did not... (laughs) did not buy a used car, uh, but I grew up with used cars. I've had many cars. Uh, we also bought a Ford Escape because it's good in the snow. Before that, we had a Ford Focus, which was a great little car, also union-made. Um, but, uh, yeah, this is better in the snow. 
That's oh. a super exciting answer. <laughs> it was a really exciting answer. <laughs> I'm on pins and needles over here. I'm feeling shivers right now. <laughs> Nicole, it's always great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being back on, and you know I'm going to be bugging you in March 2020 when your new book comes out. Sounds good. Thanks, Chuck. Take care. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. This week's question from Al is, what are you getting Bernie Sanders for Christmas this year? What are you getting Bernie Sanders for Christmas this year? Leave your response at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. The person with the best answer to this week's question wins a surprise holiday gift. We're not going to spoil the surprise, but we can give you a hint of what you're getting this year. And it's one of the books that made our best books of 2019 lists. Which one will it be? We're not going to ruin the surprise. Alex, do you have more of our listeners' answers to this week's question from Sam? Oh, yeah. What are you getting, Bernie Sanders, for Christmas this year? Chris C. says a cloned mini-me to be the hype man at rallies. A nightmare. Oh, that's horrible. <laughs> Luke H. says the heads of his enemies, um, or I mean votes. <laughs> and uh, finally, Stephen S. says $27. <laughs> Somebody else gave $20, so that's nice. Yeah. Stephen, uh, that some cheapskate gave 20, but Stephen S. Uh, had an in our seven. Yeah, he really bellied up to the bar on that one. Leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and you will have a chance at winning one of the books that made this year's list of favorite titles to be featured on This Is Hell in 2019. Speaking of which, the next book to make our list of favorite books featured on the show this year explains how reform of abortion laws has failed. Framing abortion as an issue of privacy or choice was a huge mistake, leading to a legal ruling, Roe v. Wade, that is weak in its defense of a woman's right to an abortion and actually leaves it vulnerable to limiting a woman's access to abortion. What our next book argues is that we must repeal all abortion laws now and allow any woman to have an abortion, no ifs, ands, or buts. Making our list of favorite books to be featured here on This Is Hell this year is... Without Apology, The Abortion Struggle Now by writer, teacher, and organizer with the feminist group National Women's Liberation, Jenny Brown. Learn all about National Women's Liberation by following at the number four Women's Lib on Twitter or going to their website, womensliberation.org. Jenny was a leader in the fight to get the morning after pill over the counter in the United States and a plaintiff in the winning lawsuit. Jenny's also the co-founder and director of the Woodstock Farm Animal Sanctuary, a not-for-profit organization and farm animal uh, shelter, a vegan animal rights activist, and previously worked as a television producer. This is the 10th book to make our list of now 15 favorite books to be featured on This Is Hell in 2019. Again, that's Jenny Brown's Without Apology, The Abortion Struggle Now. You can follow Jenny on Twitter at Jenny Brown LN. Find our October 25th interview with Jenny and all our interviews with the authors in our favorite books list at thisishell.com and hear them all again on New Year's Day, streaming all day at thisishell.com. Hey, Alex, who's on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one-hour stream beginning at 10 in the morning, just like today's show? Uh, sorry, uh, I'm just pulling up something right there. Uh, we got a couple more people responded uh, via to the question from hell. You want me to get that? Or yeah, no, go ahead. Okay, sorry. Hey, yeah, I'm uh, sorting my new, and then I just scrolled down, and there were a whole bunch of things that were not as new. Uh, so I don't know what's going on with uh, Facebook's algorithm. Get, uh, it get sucks. Out, Zuck. Uh, Garrett S. says, one of Karl Marx's bones. Oh, the question from hell, by the way, is uh, what are you getting, Bernie Sanders, for Christmas? Garrett S. says, a one of Karl Marx's bones. Psalm S. says, grassroots self-organization in each workplace, every community, which can effectively use space opened up by presidential Bernie to develop a wider emancipatory project. Adam A. says, ignoring the fact that he's not Christian, you mean. 
I made that preface yesterday, uh, Adam. The, yeah, it's the quest from hell. It's a joke. It's a quest from hell. Uh, Wally R says a vintage Detroit Lions jersey with number twenty. <laughs> Who was number twenty? Uh, Billy Sims, Barry Sanders. There's plenty of them. I don't know which one uh, he's talking about. Braden H says, "Well, I'm available for B- VP position." Oh, finally, uh, Jeffy gets back on the rectal oscillation. <laughs> os- well, he says he says res- rectal oscillation, not osculation. So he says rectal oscillation. Same <laughs> so as now os- he's moved different? on. He's moved on to something he's different. Rotated. By the way, which bone of Karl Marx's body? Would you assume it's a rib? I kind of would. I don't know. We hope to see you at our weekly Wednesday meet and greet. This is Hell Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, Chicago's Little India neighborhood tomorrow. More than a meet and greet, This is Hell Office Hours is a think and drink. Join us every Wednesday evening for This is Hell Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. The bar downstairs. I'm bleeding. The bar downstairs from this here studio. I don't know why. I I bark my knuckles on a regular basis, and all of a sudden I find blood on my hand. It's just really weird. Uh, And uh, it's from punching stuff, and then, you know. Oh, hey. Calluses uh, on your knuckles, and they crack open. Tomorrow at 10. Sorry, I didn't get to that. Uh, It's Maya Mikdashi. We'll be able to talk about her Jadalia piece, Beyond the Lebanese Constitution, a primer. Uh, The question from hell just totally threw me. Sorry about that. Uh, And uh, don't forget our final... This is Hell Office Hours. Every year is our annual This is Hell Holiday Office Party happening on Wednesday evening, December 18th, beginning at 6 p.m. and going until somebody does something dumb. Is your office too cheap to throw a holiday party? Make our holiday office party your holiday office party and invite all your coworkers to the This is Hell Holiday Office Party. Don't particularly like everyone at your office then invite the cool kids to the this is hell holiday office party does your work not have an office and then you all work together from your own homes then invite all your co-workers to the annual this is hell holiday office party where we promise everyone who attends will get a this is hell related gift need a last minute gift we'll also have all our this is hell merchandise available that's wednesday december 18th beginning at 6 p.m and running until who the hell knows? Oh, I got to order that stuff from Tam so we can have it here. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live streaming host, whatever this is, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show. Alex Jerry, I want to thank Alex for producing this week's show. Thanks to Penn Donovan for joining us to talk to us about her book, School is Stupid. Thanks to Nicole M. Ashoff for talking to us about her article at Jacobin against self-driving cars. And we also want to thank Melissa and Calvin for suggesting authors whose books eventually made our favorite books list of 2019. And I guess thanks to Alex for that as well, because he was the person who suggested Them Goon Rules by Marquis Bay. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this morning's show. This afternoon's, this week's, whatever the hell it is. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.